0: Welcome to Late Kick is live. It is Thursday night, July 7th. Year of our Lord, 2022 college football's earthquake continues. And here we are huddled under the Late Kick doorframe, ready to speculate wildly about what's next. We are jam-packed, of course, as always, high atop anticipatory downtown Nashville, Tennessee. Look, everything's changing. Maybe some things are going to change that we don't like. Maybe some things ironically change and we do like them. But a lot's changing and we will discuss tonight. Not so much blind speculation, but maybe some informed speculation about what's around the corner and what you don't like and why you're right to feel that way. Bold Predictions, Chapter 22 on the show tonight. Also, recruiting. Big day for Florida. Congrats to the Gators. We're going to hit that. But also, in the much broader scheme of things, things changing in Florida, things changing in Texas, things changing in California. And if you watch Late Kicker, you listen to it and have for a while, you know how important we think those three regions are. They're watching us in Rapid City, South Dakota. They're watching us in Newark, Ohio. Katy, Texas is tuned in. Spartanburg, South Carolina is tuned in. A lot is about to change on this show Sunday night. We've got not one, not two, but several major announcements coming. You know what I'm going to do at the behest of producer Jesse? I'm going to tell you what one of them is because it's probably the third or fourth biggest announcement we have coming. We are going to release the name of this year's Late Kick Tour. This Sunday night. Now, producer Jesse had a great idea. Uh, It's been workshopped over the past seven minutes or so. If you want to try and guess this thing and you actually arrive at the guess, because we've already arrived at what it's going to be, so I know what it's going to be. I have it right here. Um, If you're able to guess it, you can hashtag it Pate State if you want to guess it on Twitter. If you're able to guess what the name of the tour is going to be this fall, I don't know what you're going to get yet because this idea is so fresh, but you're going to get something new. Uh, Real talk though, Sunday night. I don't care if you miss the rest of the shows until the season starts. Be here Sunday night. That's all I'm going to say. Let's dive into the show tonight. Uh, Is it fair? I mean, do we want to call it a realignment earthquake, a college football earthquake? Because that's about, maybe it's because I was in California last week, but that's about uh, all I could arrive at. So let's dive in here. College football, man, seismic activity all over the sport. Let's just call it that. And a lot's going on. There's a lot of speculation out there right now. I want to warn you to be careful, but the first thing I want to do is I want to ask you a little question, and then I'm going to give you about five or six minutes to sort of marinate on it. What do you think about Notre Dame? Not your prediction on where they're going to land. Everybody's got to guess. Big Ten, Independent, ACC, none of that. We'll talk about that in due time. I want to ask you very simply, what do you think about Notre Dame? if you're in your mid-30s or if you're in your mid-50s, 60s, you've watched college football your whole life, oh, you've got an opinion of them. You know you do. I was raised in the South. I was raised to not exactly view that Golden Dome in the most endearing of fashions. What do you think about Notre Dame? I want you to think about that for a second, and then let's circle it right back around to where we are, and I'll tell you why all that matters in just a second. You'll notice on this show, the other night and tonight, we don't really have any fancy graphics for you where we guess which teams are going to wind up where. there's a reason for that. It's a very, very fluid situation. And in fluid situations, you just end up looking stupid when you try and do that stuff. There's a tweet flying around out there right now that's got millions upon millions of impressions and tens of thousands of retweets. It's just utter foolishness. I'll reference it in a second. I think a lot of you know what I'm talking about. So, yeah, there's some speculation to be had. Let me tell you two things I know. Okay? Well, let's deal in the definitives for just a second here. Two things I know. One of them is that we're in an information vacuum. This happens in recruiting sometimes. If a kid is really, really tight-lipped, in the absence of any tangible information, one rumor gets out there on a message board or on talk radio or whatever, and it just spreads like wildfire, because there's no other information to be had. The problem is that one bit of information is not information at all. It in and of itself was false, but because the kid's family's not talking and his uncle's not talking and he's not talking, That's all you had to go on. That's kind of what's happening here. And I just want you guys to be careful. I know everyone wants to sound like they know what they're talking about here. Uh, We, and and I I being the person who's behind the mic representing this entire operation, I've been willing to tell you I don't know uh, when I don't know. And in this case, I don't know. I don't know who's gonna land where, uh, but I can tell you there are a lot of things moving. You know, I actually do have some people I can call about this. There are a lot of things moving, obviously. Don't fall victim to this, though. Don't fall victim to speaking in definitive terms about things that we really know nothing about. Consider this. The actual moves that have been made, i.e., Oklahoma, Texas coming to the SEC, i.e., UCLA, USC coming to the Big Ten, who was talking about that? Until the hour before the news broke, who was talking about that? Do do you know how hard that is? Here's how tight-lipped and secretive that operation was. Bob Bowlesby, the Big 12 commissioner last year, did not know OU and Texas were leaving. George Klykoff, the Pac-12 commissioner, did not know USC and UCLA were leaving until the news broke. They literally found out when you and I did. They had to look at a phone to find out. So if that gives you any indication as to how tight-lipped all this is, then it's probably wise to just sit back, toss your feet up, and when it happens, it'll happen. The second thing I know, though, And this one's more personal for me, but the more I talk to you guys, I think a lot of you feel the same way. Or maybe you don't, you can tell me. The more I hear people tell me about how much money these changes in college football are gonna make, the more I wanna walk out this door and jump out the window. I don't care. I'm gonna tell you, I don't care about how much more money these media rights deals are gonna bring conferences. I don't care. And my humble opinion is you should not care. Not only are you not gonna see a dime of that money, Not only are your ticket prices and parking and concessions and everything still going to go up magically, no matter how many hundreds of millions more dollars in the coffers, Uh, not only will these moves choke off a large portion of the underbelly of the sport, and I don't mean that pejoratively, not only is all that true, but also think about this. Uh, Could I suggest to you that growth and financial increase are not necessarily tied at the hip here? You can add money. And not necessarily be growing the sport now to some folks out there um, who i have heard nationwide this week that's not true some out there would indicate to you that as long as you're making more money that means by default the sport is growing well i don't particularly believe that allow me to illustrate it for you what if a network came to me yesterday and offered me 50 million dollars a year for late Cake? they want to buy the property of late Cake, and i accepted it one of their conditions is I can only talk about the CFL. So we're going to talk Canadian football. This is going to be a Canadian Football League show now, but we're making 50 mil a year. So what did we do with the show? Did we grow the show? I grew my bank account. Did we grow the show? Would you be in this chat right now? Would you be on Twitter? Would you be in my DMs? Would you be slapping me on the back when you pass me on the street saying, Good for you. You know, you're going to talk about stuff I hate, and I couldn't care less about the show anymore because it was built on college football. That's why I love it, and you're changing everything about it, so you'll never see me again. But good for you. You grew the show. Of course, you wouldn't say that. That would be ignorant. You would say, in chasing the almighty dollar, you just completely ruined everything that was great about your show. Now, I'm not going so far to that extreme when it comes to college football. There'll still be a lot that we love about college football, but I think that. Some amongst us are looking at this from the wrong angle. Some are looking and saying, well, how could could this not be good for the sport if that many millions more dollars are coming in? Well, I'll tell you how. It's if that many millions more dollars is tied to changing things fundamentally about the sport that are some of the key reasons you and I love it. I don't think you and I are alone. That's the point. So let me go back to the question that I asked you about five minutes ago. What do you think about Notre Dame? I think you may be guessing how this ties in, but I think you're wrong. This is not going to be a segment about me speculating where Notre Dame's going to go. I think they may join a conference, may not join a conference. Your guess is as good as mine on Notre Dame. I'm pretty sure those guys and uh, the folks around that situation have been tight-lipped enough to where there's no good information on that either. But I don't want to ask you that. I want to ask you, again, like I did to start the show, what do you think about Notre Dame? I grew up in West Central Georgia. No one likes Notre Dame down there. Well, no one who is native to Georgia likes Notre Dame. And uh, so it was, a, it was a Southern football mentality, and they were the Golden Domers. They were up North, and you'd see documentaries, and you'd hear names like Newt Rockne and Era Parcesian, and those were ghosts to me. They were gone long before I came around, but yet, because of my reverence for the history of the sport... I did just that, the root word. I revered them. So I looked up to them, but at the same time, I was taught not to like Notre Dame. And as I got a little bit older, then I started to understand the context of why I wasn't supposed to like Notre Dame. I wasn't supposed to like them because they think they're better than you. They think that they should be able to operate under a different set of rules. This is what was taught to me, of course. They're up there in South Bend, Indiana, and whereas you have to play in a conference, and you know, by the time I'm growing up, you've got to go win a conference championship, they don't have to do any of that. They can control their own schedule. They get their own TV deal. And whoops are they to be able to get all that? Well, uh, it turns out Notre Dame's who they are. And that's why they get to do that. Anyway, I had a healthy amount of animosity for Notre Dame growing up. And over about the last 10 years, I would say that shifted. I've talked about this on the show a few times. That shifted in my mind uh, as I observed the changes going on in college football, as I watched the implementation of the playoff. As I watched, uh, most recently, NIL, The Portal, a lot of things that are changing the sport. Some for the better, some not for the better. But I'll tell you where Notre Dame comes into this equation. There's this really interesting overlap right now. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but there's this just a fascinating overlap right now in college football. You got Group A, who has been perma-mad at Notre Dame. They've always screamed at Notre Dame, you need to get with the times, you need to join a conference, you don't deserve to operate under any different rules than the rest of us. Then you got that same group over here on the other side of the fence, and they're yelling at college football and the powers that be. How could you rip away at the fabric of the traditions of this sport that I love so much in the name of money? And then Notre Dame's over in the corner saying, w- 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 which side are you on? Do you want change for change's sake, chasing money, or do you want to cling to tradition because that's all we were doing the entire time? You don't think people put tons of money in our face, including right now? We've told them no before. We've actually been one of the only entities out there to pass up big dollars to cling to what we view as our foundational principles and traditions at Notre Dame. Is it different than the rest of the country? Yet maybe. Do you have to like it? No, you don't. But at the very least, if you're claiming you don't like the direction of college football because of the reasons, you should respect us for clinging to ours. And uh, that's where I've been for quite a while. I've taken some flack for it. I talk about the Rose Bowl the same way. I've had a newer found respect for the Rose Bowl, whereas a lot of folks yell at them and say, you should get out of the way. Rose Bowl, you should get out of the way. Don't be so steadfast in maintaining certain aspects of the tradition that have been baked into that game for so long because you're standing in the way of us overturning the rest of the sport, blah, blah, blah. I'm all for the Rose Bowl standing pat, I'm all for Notre Dame, standing pat and as long as they want to, clinging to a lot of what the rest of this sport could stand to learn a lesson or two from. Now, as for the future, I know there's a lot of speculation. I've used the word about 10 times. Now, I know there's a lot of speculation out there about what is next. Is the Big Ten going to go poach several teams from the Pac-12? Is the ACC going to enter into one of those fabled loose partnerships? What's your favorite loose partnership in history, by the way? Is there going to be a loose partnership between the ACC and the Pac-12? I will tell you what isn't true. What isn't true is what I saw floating around out there way too high profile today. And that was a report, according to a source, that ESPN was trying to void their deal with the ACC so that four of the ACC's teams could join the SEC. Yeah, I'll go ahead and unequivocally tell you that's BS. So we'll shoot that one down here. Now, as for what will happen, what will happen is still undecided. Some of the very people in the room who will make the decisions on this would tell you if they had to tell you the truth. I don't really know. that's where everyone should be at the moment because there is nothing to know. Um, Some of the motivation, though, I think I can somewhat explain. For instance, if you were wondering why the ACC would ever even venture into some partnership, scheduling partnership, whatever you want to call it with the Pac-12. Well, it really comes down to, and I know this is going to shock you, money and survival in no particular order. What you need to know right now is the the biggest elephant in the room by 10 miles is the upcoming Big Ten media rights deal. Heard me talk about it on the show a lot. We thought it was coming, and now the USC UCLA monkey wrench gets thrown into the plans, and now they go back to the drawing board. And it's probably going to be August, maybe even the start of the season before we see that media deal inked. And that's not even knowing what Notre Dame is going to do. Anyway, someone, multiple someone's, as it seems, uh, are going to give the Big Ten a whole lot of money. That we know. We don't know the exact number, but that we know. Now, think beyond that. If you're the ACC, if you're the Big Twelve, if you're the Pac-12 you know not everyone who's bidding on that Big Ten media rights deal is going to win. And there's going to be a lot of money, going to be a lot of funds that have been allocated towards purchasing Big Ten media rights deals that are then just left on the table. So the thinking, whether it pans out this way or not is another story, but the thinking is, well, if I'm the Big 12, I want to be as attractive as possible because I want to be there for Apple, or I want to be there for CBS, or I want to be there for Amazon, or whoever was in the race for those Big Ten media deals and they missed out because they're going to have a lot of money to spend, and there aren't really any other big media rights deals that I see on the horizon for college football. I want to have a product that's desirable enough where they pay me enough where it makes a difference long term. And maybe I don't start out on equal footing when the dust settles and it's us and the SEC and the Big Ten left as the real big boys on the block. But I can grow myself because I'm making enough in those media rights deals to grow myself. Well, the ACC looks at that and says, "Uh, I'm not interested in that whatsoever. So, why don't we enter into a loose partnership with the Pac 12 and we can cut that merger off at the pass and we can really choke off the Big 12's ability to do that? Sounds convoluted, doesn't it? It's really not. It's not even necessarily chess, it's just a more advanced version of checkers. That's what's happening right now. Here's the problem. You've got folks at Utah, and you've got folks at Clemson, and you've got all these folks who are on the phone with one entity, and then the other one, they're just texting. Like, I, I don't even doubt that's pretty close to what the reality is. No one knows who they can trust. No one knows where the television partner really fits into this equation. There are some trains of thought out there that ESPN or Fox or CBS, they're really kind of pulling the strings behind the curtain. And then there are other schools of thought that, Everyone is in a holding pattern until the Big Ten does what they do, and then we'll kind of reassess. It's convoluted. But I did want to tell you this. We did have some scoop the other night. I know some of you saw it on Twitter, but I haven't shown this to you on the show. Behind the curtain is interesting. Because when you get behind the curtain, you learn how things are really operating. You learn how the operation is really going down. I know in the SEC, Greg Sankey is... A pretty front-facing commissioner. Everyone knows he's driving the bus. Do we really know who's driving the bus in the Big Ten? I know the commissioner there is Kevin Warren. But therein lies the scoop that we had the other night. A buddy of mine happens to live part of the year out of the country, part of the year in the country, well, part of the year in the uh, continental United States. He's down in the Cayman Islands the other day. And he was not alone in the Cayman Islands. Keep in mind, the Big Ten's deal with USC and UCLA has just broken. A day before, I think. Maybe two days before. And as I said on Twitter, a Pate State source spotted Kevin Warren, Big Ten commissioner, in the Cayman Islands. In the Cayman Islands! So I ask you, friends, do you really believe that Kevin has set up shop in the Cayman Islands, and he's running point on everything from down there? Or, alternate, do we believe that there may be some other power players? behind the scenes, perhaps with the initials JD that formerly held a very, very front-facing position in that conference. I hope I've been clear enough. I'm a believer that Jim Delaney is still heavily involved in this. And that's not baseless. That has been said to me by a few people. Um, So it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, what's going to happen is going to happen. It's just kind of interesting how things are happening versus how you may perceive them to be happening. So I do believe there are moves coming from the Big 12. I have no clue what happens beyond that, nor does most anyone else out there. So stay tuned. I think the Sunday show could be full of fireworks for multiple reasons. I've got something tonight that Academy Sports and Outdoors does not know I'm going to read, but I'm going to be honest. I think that they should just press the record button right now, and they should just run what I'm about to do as a national ad campaign because it gets no better than this. Late Kick viewer Al, we're going to omit the last name. He hits me up in my Instagram DMs at Lake Kick Josh. There. Here was Al's conundrum, classic conundrum. He doesn't know a whole lot about fishing, but his wife and daughters are out of town. And so his little guy comes to him and says, Dad, take me fishing. And Al does what any father worth his salt does he pretends to know about fishing. He says, All right, buddy, come on. And then he goes to academy. We pick the story up there. Al hits me up. I had no idea where to buy fishing equipment, says Al. But because of your promotions from Academy, I decided to start there. I was blown away by the selection they had. I was able to get his first fishing rod along with all the other needed gear, as you can see in the attached pictures, which you're seeing right now if you're watching on YouTube. He was very pleased with the purchase. We'll be trying it out tonight. Pray for good results. I'm thankful to you and Academy for indirectly leading me to this awesome experience with my son. Thank you, Al, a regular listener from Lincolnton, Georgia, hometown of Garrison Hurst. And here we see the end result. It was a very successful trip with top of the line equipment and a memory brought to you by Al, his son, and Academy Sports and Outdoors that will last a lifetime. As I tell you guys a lot, sure you can get your sporting goods equipment there, but there are also other things that you can get there that maybe aren't on the top of your mind when you think about a sporting goods store. If among them for Al, fishing equipment. So Al walked in knowing nothing, about fishing, and he walked out, uh, might as well have his own TV show on Saturday mornings now. So thank you to Academy Sports and Outdoors for being our exclusive partner, and thanks to you guys, courtesy of Al. Bold prediction time! Here we go. Chapter 22. They said we'd never make it this far, but look at us, thriving in the 20s. How far do we make it, by the way? Do the bold predictions make it to Chapter 30? If your submissions today were any indication, I think they will. Uh, These are things that you claim you would bet your own money on. I just want to put that out there. Here we go. First up, Florida State, according to Chris, will go three of four in games against LSU, Miami, Clemson, and Florida. Paper pop. That is an eight on the boldness scale of one to 10. I'm gonna do you guys a favor here. I have not done this at all throughout the entire summer. I'm gonna dust off the late kick model. It's the first time that I've revealed any of our hypothetical lines. These are not Vegas numbers. These are what our model actually has to say about these numbers. Uh, FSU is gonna be a dog in all these games. We, in order, chronologically, would have LSU by two and a half over FSU right now. We would have Clemson by 11 and a half over FSU. We would have Miami by 10 over FSU. And we would have Florida by four and a half. That one's in Doak, I believe, towards the end of the season. So as you heard, there's no 30-point spread there, but they are a dog there. So it would require three mild to moderate outright upsets. Just standard. I'm gonna go with an eight there. Uh, splitting those four games, I think would be a pretty big deal. In fact, I think if I offered you that right now, if you're a Florida State fan, you get to pick two out of those four games to win. Given that your over-under win total in Vegas is seven right now, you split those. I think you're going over unless you have devastating injury or or several big upsets elsewhere. So that one's an eight for me. Next up, kind of a version of a question that or a prediction that we had a couple of weeks ago, but this one from Dylan is a little more specific. This year's college football playoff will be 100 percent Big Ten. And SEC, a foresight into the future of the sport. I made this one an eight. Man, it's, it, it really shows the strength of the conferences that it's not higher than that. So I'm gonna read a list of teams to you. As on YouTube, you can see the teams that have already made it throughout the uh, entirety of the playoffs so far. For this to pan out, for it to only be SEC and Big Ten, teams like Oklahoma, USC, Texas, Utah, Oregon, Clemson, Miami, Pitt, NC State, Notre Dame, none of them can be in because you've got Georgia and Ohio State and Michigan and A&M or Alabama. If if you have just two representatives here conference-wide, of course it's going to be the Big Ten and the SEC. We also don't know what Notre Dame is going to do and fit into this whole equation. So outside of that, I am saying this is an eight, but it would be a brutal twist of irony right into the ribs if before we even enter the quote-unquote new world of college football, we have a playoff that features Big Ten and SEC exclusively. I also think when you think about teams like Utah, just to pick the Utes as an example, doesn't there have to be a little more desperation than normal? Because you do not know what 2024 and 5 and beyond holds for you. You quite literally at the moment don't even know what conference you're going to be in, much less what kind of shot you're going to have at the playoff. But you do know this. If you guys go, for instance, into Gainesville and beat Florida week one, or maybe you lose 30 to 27, but you run the table the rest of the way and you win the Pac-12, you got a pretty darn good shot of being in the playoff. You don't know how much longer that lasts. It's like driving into a thunderstorm down here. Like It's, it's the south. It's the summer. So you see those rain shafts all over the place in the afternoon. You look down I-65 and about a quarter mile away, that rain shaft's in front of you. You can't see through it. Utah? And teams like that, they can't see past 2024, 2025, but they can see right in front of them right now. Desperation time. Because if it's ever going to happen, the the stuff that you control is just right in front of you. A couple of years, you can't see past that. So I'm going to call that one an eight. I do believe there will be representation outside the SEC and the Big Ten. Next up, this one gets really, really saucy. Katie, by the way, hit us up from Barstool, who would probably be the single biggest name in that company, if she didn't have to be shackled to the likes of Brandon Walker. I digress, Cade Klubnik, according to Katie, will start a game over DJ Uyangalale at least once this year. Notice what she didn't say. She didn't say that he's gonna start because DJ's hurt, she just said he's gonna start. And I actually don't think it's that bold. I think it's a five, because I happen to believe this is going to go down. Now it flies in the face of conventional wisdom, Conventional wisdom tells you a five-star quarterback with a year's worth of starting experience under his belt is going to flourish in year two. That's just what Preview Magazine conventional wisdom tells you. We know what to do with that. History has taught us. Uh, The second thing it does is it flies in the face of what Dabo Swinney, his head coach Derek Clemson, said in the spring. He was adamant, was Dabo Swinney, that we're behind DJ. We we have every bit of hope and confidence and trust that he's going to develop into the quarterback we need him to be. I'm a little less certain, but also I don't think it really gets real in anyone's mind until you get into the season, until it's live bullets time in week one or two or whenever. You know, they open against Georgia Tech. My point with Tech is not that that's an upset alert game necessarily, but I think a lot of folks look at Clemson's schedule and they see Georgia Tech, Furman, Louisiana Tech, at Wake Forest. They start getting three or four weeks down the road before they truly believe that Clemson will be tested. I am trying to explain to some of my Clemson brethren, even as we speak, if you do have the same problems you had last year, you will not get through week one before you know it. You won't get through the first half of week one before you know it. Mark my words. If DJ Uyangalele is truly that improved, this is a moot point non-issue. If he's not, if they still have the same struggles they had last year, you will have a, a very ugly first half against Georgia Tech. Here's the difference. Last year, it didn't matter. He was trotting right back out there if he was healthy. This year, you know in the back of your mind what you didn't know last year, and that is I got a healthy and very talented backup on the bench in Cade Klubnik, and he had five stars next to his name too, and he looked really good in spring too, and we know we recruited him and we evaluated him and we love him just like we love DJ out of high school. If it's 38 to 13 in week one against Clemson or against Georgia Tech, you're good. But what if we get midway through the third quarter and it's 16 to 12? It's just a, cl- a clunker of a game. How much leash do we see DJ with? And then here's the, here's the follow up because it's one thing to replace your quarterback in a game. Katie said, club that's going to start a game. So if we see the switch, of course, then you you just visualize the post-game presser. And in the post-game presser, first question to Dabo Swinney, a Hickey sitting right there representing 24-7 sports for the Clemson site. And she says, what is the status of the quarterback battle now moving forward? And Dabo's going to say, we're going to take it day to day. Or maybe he even says, well, you know, DJ's our starter still. Point being, all of a sudden it becomes a question. And eventually, if that is the case, especially early in the year, k Club that's going to end up starting for you. My point is, if it starts early or if it happens midway through the season, I think that time eventually will come this year. Um, so I don't think it's that bold to suggest. Next up, let's go to the Big 12. ECU plays in the Big 12 championship game, huh? Well, in the Big 12, as you know, our philosophy here is there is no 10 there isn't really even a nine. Short of Kansas winning the whole thing, there isn't really that bold a prediction that could be made in this conference. So I'm gonna call this one an eight, and and I may be too high there. TCU has the one, two, three, four, uh, the sixth longest odds right now to win the Big 12. The prediction is they're gonna play in the Big 12 championship game. Of course, it should be noted, last year, the Baylor Bears won the conference. They played in the game, they won the conference. They had the second longest odds to win the thing in the entire conference going into the season. So if TCU pulled this off, it wouldn't be near the odds upset that Baylor pulling that off was last year. Sonny Dykes is the head coach at TCU now. Gary Patterson is wearing a longhorn polo down in Austin. Not the head coach. Some people will tell you not yet. He's not the head coach there any longer. Sonny Dykes is. Came over from SMU. And I'll tell you what's really interesting there. People have questions about them along the lines of scrimmage, but they got two quarterbacks that if anyone's going to figure out in year one, it's going to be Sonny Dykes. And they just, they kind of have like an interesting roster. You you get wide ranges of opinions from people out in the Big 12, but that's the way they talked about Baylor last year, if you'll recall. So this is not crazy to me. It's bold. You know what? I'm not even going to call it an eight. It's a seven. Why not? A seven. They have at Texas and at Baylor. Mid November, and that's not the easiest way to wrap up your schedule, but I'm going to call it a seven. There's TCU's schedule here on the back half. I mean, it's a tough three game stretch to end it. They go at Texas, at Baylor, Iowa State. You know, for all I know, we could see them enter November in the race before fading because of that back three game stretch to end the season. But nevertheless, I'm going to say that's a seven on the boldness scale. Bold, but not impossible. Last one here, it gets really personal really quick. And a lot of you don't know what this means, and I'll explain it to you. Our friends there at College Football Unlimited said, the Ramen Noodle Express will exceed 60% against the spread this year. Eyeball emoji. You know what this is? It's a two on the boldness scale. Least bold prediction we've had so far out of 22 chapters. We did this just two years ago. Last year, we were below 60%. Still very profitable, but below 60%. Uh, It is our mission in life. And it has been since the ending of last year, to do two things. Number one, get our YouTube channel to 100,000 subs. Done. Number two, be back above 60% with the Ramen Noodle Express this year. We have added tens of thousands of new listeners and viewers who are no doubt asking themselves, I miss something, what's the Ramen Noodle Express? It makes no sense to me. It shouldn't. Here's all it is. When I used to do radio down in Columbus, Georgia, we used to joke all the time. We had a caller who used to joke about his bets that he was placing for the weekend and he needed them to hit or else his kids, were are going to have to survive on ramen noodles. I took that, and years later, I needed to name our betting segment. And so I just named it the Ramen Noodle Express. It is, it is expressly meant to keep you off a ramen noodle diet. And we have really cool logos with it, too. Maybe some cooler ones this year. TBD. But the Ramen Noodle Express is our pack of picks that we give out on the show. We have our own proprietary model. Uh, we, we don't sell it. We don't sell the picks. It's nothing like that. This show is where you come for them. You take them or leave them. Our advice is bet all of them or don't bet any of them. More on how this is gonna work functionally later on, but the Ramen Noodle Express, it is my mission. My, uh, not quite promise, cause that'll get me in legal trouble. My mission and my vow from me to you is I will try my best to get that thing back over 60% this year. Stay tuned on that. They're watching us in Springville, Utah, which I hear is lovely this time of year. Charlotte, North Carolina's tuned in, DeWitt, Michigan, and Alexandria, Louisiana, all tuned in. Let's talk about football. There's been a precious lack of actual football talk this week because of all the other stuff sucking the oxygen out of the room. So I was going to do a segment tonight on the biggest swing games of the year. Then I was going to do a segment on the first half of the season. Then I was going to do a segment just on September. But at the end of the day, I couldn't even get through weeks one and two. So here's what we're going to do. Here we go, Colin. Biggest swing games, first couple of weeks in September. Because there are a lot of them, as it turns out. And I want to start in week one. And I want to start in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Because that is where Cincinnati, playoff-bound Cincinnati from a year ago, rolls into face Arkansas. It's one of the toughest out-of-conference schedules in the country. Arkansas plays this year. Uh, This one's a big swing game for both teams. For, For Cincinnati, it's very obvious. You know, any of the G5 teams, they normally need to go undefeated to be in the conversation. So if Cincinnati loses this and they're about a seven or a seven and a half point dog, according to oddsmakers right now, then, yeah, that would be the swing for them. Winning and losing, it's a big swing for Cincinnati. But I'm really more focused on Arkansas here because, you see, here's the thing about the perception around Arkansas. No one takes this game for granted. No one looks at this one and says, oh, that's a cakewalk. There's another cream puff for the SEC in week one. No, it's nothing like that. But no one's looking at it picking Cincinnati to win either. So there's this this fine line you walk. You view it as a nice, stiff challenge. It's a resume builder. But it's not a landmine. No one's looking at it like that. But the obvious connotation here in labeling it a swing game is, we do have to entertain the idea that Arkansas could lose. I know that's foreign concept on this show, but Arkansas could lose the game if they were to lose that game after all of this immense hype in what a casual would deem the offseason. What if Arkansas is welcoming South Carolina into town week two and they're 0-1? That's not something anyone in Preview Magazine lands ready for. So this is a big swing game because Arkansas has got a bunch of big games down the road. Can't have them start 0-1, can we? Dot, dot, dot. Uh, Second up, which is a game that actually will take place two days before this one. Uh, This one's off the radar, but it will be on the radar pretty soon once you guys realize this is the first big game you're going to see, unless you count the week zero game in Ireland. Penn State goes to Purdue in week one. It's a Thursday night game. And uh, interestingly enough, the way that Fox was able to acquire this thing included Joe Buck going to ESPN. It's one of those little footnotes of history that a game was traded for an announcer. Uh, It wasn't exactly a one-for-one swap, but you get the picture there. So the line on this thing is three and a half. Penn State minus three and a half. Make no mistake, this is not just a swing game for Penn State. It's both of them. I know on the national radar, you hear Purdue and you think, "Ah, afterthought in the Big Ten. Well, they're not uh, for two reasons. Number one, they got a quarterback that's about 37 years old. He's been there a long time. But number two, they play in the Big Ten West. And this very well could be the toughest game they play all year. I would argue their game at Wisconsin is tougher, but it's comparable at the very least. If they get by Penn State in week one, here's what's going to happen. You know it happens every year. You have that that prime standalone game on the Thursday night. Think about, for instance, when Texas A&M went into South Carolina and they just drug South Carolina several years ago, Kevin Sumlin era. And Kenny Hill got labeled a Heisman favorite for about a week. When you have that Thursday night game, especially the winner of that game, you get an inordinate amount of praise. Because no one has calibrated how to handle things because it's week one, it's the first thing you're seeing, and everyone's bet on the game. Probably an irresponsible amount of money you'll be betting on Purdue or Penn State. If Purdue wins that game, especially if quarterback Aiden O'Connell shines, you will look at them and everyone all of a sudden will be an expert on Purdue. But the point is, even if they're a little overhyped, look at the schedule. Indiana State the next week. At Syracuse, Florida Atlantic, they got back-to-back road games. Yes, they do. Against Minnesota, which is in turmoil at the moment, and Maryland, Nebraska, they get down to October 22nd before there's another game that makes you really go, ooh, man, and that's at Wisconsin. They finish up with Iowa, at Illinois, Northwestern, at Indiana. You keep waiting for that Ohio State bombshell. There's not one. You keep waiting for Michigan. There's not one. So Purdue, if they get past that first game against Penn State, This is not a meat grinder of a schedule. But on the other side with Penn State, feels the same as it did last year. They knew that they were opening against Wisconsin last year. They had Auburn in week three. Those were going to be coin flip games, and it was going to determine the trajectory of the season. As it turns out, they won both of them and still underachieved because of injury at the quarterback position. But it's the same way this year. We don't predict injury. They got a very, very tight game there against Purdue. Two weeks later, they go to Auburn. And so what are they going to be when they play Michigan on October 15th? One-loss team, two-loss team, undefeated team. Think about how different that game looks. You got undefeated Penn State going into Michigan all of a sudden, October 15th. That's not a game the nation is talking about yet. That's how college football unfolds. You got to use the context that week by week you get on Saturdays. So that's a big one. Uh, What a veteran quarterback battle. Think Sean Clifford and Aiden O'Connell, combined age, triple digits, or very close to it so it's going to be fun to watch. Uh, FSU versus LSU is the Sunday night standalone game. The Labor Day weekend, it's week one, so uh, this is the Sunday night game. This is the game that will make us start our show early on Sunday night. Each of these teams, if you think about it, each of them has that kind of 5% scenario where everything goes right and they win nine games. That is in the cards. It's not likely, but there's a path where if everything went right for FSU or LSU, and they just hit home runs all year, they'd they'd go nine and three. That could happen. Point being, that's out the window automatically for whichever one of them loses this game. And it may not be likely for the winner, but it's certainly out of the cards for the loser. Uh, It's a bigger swing game for LSU, though. Because to me, I think about Florida State now. This is the way I feel about Florida State. I look at them, especially if they're competitive in this game, they can dust themselves off. I mean, they they came very close against LSU in the Superdome. You know, nothing to write home about, but that's also no great shame. They go back home, they dust themselves off, they get ready for conference play, and they still have a very good season. If LSU loses this game, though, number one, that's just how you forever remember the Brian Kelly era starting. It's a big recruiting game for them, too. But the third thing to remember is LSU's schedule is so backloaded. LSU's schedule... It screams, you better start fast. You better start 4-0, 5-0, because eventually you get, you get to that kind of cliff and then all of a sudden it gets really, really fast, downhill, really quick on the back half of it. And I'm looking at it right now, just to give you an idea, if you're listening on podcast, they got Florida State. Okay, then they got Southern. Really fun game for the locals down there. That yeah. halftime show was Southern in town. I heard uh, Jordi Collada the other day had the AD on down there. What a good get that was. And they were talking about that. So Southern Mississippi State, New Mexico, I know you guys are looking at that stretch and you're saying we should be 4-0. When we go to Auburn, we should be 4-0. Odds makers would agree with you. I'm not arguing that either. But if there's a blemish already and you've still got Auburn, Tennessee, Florida, Ole Miss, Bama, Arkansas, UAB, a and just back to back to back. It's body blow after body blow after body blow. That's when you start looking at a situation where you go from hoping to win eight or nine to... Oh, let's just make a bowl game. Please let us make a bowl game. So it's a big swing game there. That's week one. Let's go to week two. This one's going to be really fun. It's going to be played in an NFL stadium because that's where Pitt plays their games. But Tennessee at Pitt in week two. This one was fun last year. Pitt edged them down at Neyland last year. So Tennessee goes up there in week two. This is where you're going to find out one of two things. Okay, very clear. You're either going to find out that Pitt made the right moves and they they saw Kenny Pickett go to the NFL draft, but they got Kedon Slovis. Presumably, he ends up starting at quarterback. Uh, they brought in some receiver help, and it was enough to where their offense was potent enough to where they absorbed the challenge from Tennessee and they responded and they beat them again. Which also probably indicates Pitt is going to be a big player in the ACC race, even though it's not a conference game. Either that happens, or Tennessee goes up there and wins. And however Tennessee wins, I personally wouldn't care get the win on the road by any means necessary, but that puts Tennessee on track to be undefeated when Florida comes to town in week four. As you know, there are a few games I get selfish on, and one of them is I would kind of prefer to see Florida versus Tennessee, undefeated versus undefeated week four. Part of that equation relies on Tennessee going and beating Pitt. I don't like to play favorites, but I kind of am. Speaking of that hypothetical week four matchup, Another thing that we need to happen involves the following game, Kentucky at Florida. I didn't put Utah at Florida on here week one because I was going to talk about this one. So I could go either way. Kentucky at Florida is in week two. This one very much qualifies as a swing game. So this outcome plays very much into that week four game. If, if you're going to have undefeated versus undefeated there, you need Florida to not only take care of Utah, but to take care of Kentucky. How about Kentucky though? You know, Kentucky's looked at, as a lot of people sleep or pick, they do it every year, uh, with good reason. It's a very solid program. But Kentucky's schedule, if they win this game, all of a sudden gets really interesting because I don't think people have it memorized, and I don't think people have particularly paid a lot of attention to it. But all of a sudden, if Kentucky gets this win, which I don't think people are chalking up in the preseason, then you'll start looking, and there are a lot of these kinds of games. There are a lot of, hmm, a lot of those kinds of games on Kentucky's schedule. But there's not another, oh, until they play Georgia. And you know what I mean by that. If you're into perusing SEC schedules, whenever you see someone playing Bama or Georgia, that's the, oh. Or maybe if you've got to go to AM, m that's a, oh. But Kentucky, after they play Florida, they got a couple of out-of-conference games they should win. They go to Ole Miss, that's a, hmm. They got South Carolina at home, that's a, hmm. Mississippi State, hmm. At Tennessee, hmm at Missouri. Hmm. It's not until they get all the way down to the Georgia game, which is the second to last week of the year, where you go, but if they've already beaten Florida, who's to say they hadn't beaten everyone else there? Or who's to say they may not be more than a one-loss team? Who knows what that Georgia game could mean? And let's just not assume that the Georgia Bulldogs are unscathed there in the second to last week of the year. Crazier things have happened. So that swing game in week two, I know there's a wide gap between September 10th and November 19th. But when you look at what's between one and the other, hey, Kentucky, especially if Will Levis is fulfilling on that immense potential of his at quarterback, could be a really interesting team because coming out of that game, everyone's spotlight will be on him. Whereas it won't be, I don't think, going into that game. Uh, let's move into something that is very near and dear to my heart on this show, and that is understanding what actually inserts competitive balance in the college football. If you have watched Late Kick for a while, you know that I talk about one theme about once every couple of months, and that is recruiting in California, Texas, and Florida uh, because as everyone else tells you that you need to have a playoff of a certain size or you need to have NIL or the transfer portal to inject that, that fabled and valued competitive balance and parity into the sport, the reality is you don't need any of that. What you need is teams in California and Texas and Florida to recruit well enough to where teams like Ohio State and Alabama and Clemson can't go into all of those states and raid them of their in-state talent. There are famous stories now, just over the last few years, of watching teams like Bama go win championships with a bunch of -of out-of-state talent, namely from South Florida. I think they won a title in South Florida a couple of years ago with a defensive backfield made up of all Florida kids. So yeah, you can imagine how that makes them feel in South Florida. Now, have you noticed what's happening? If you don't follow recruiting hardcore, let me fill you in. There are some big moves being made. Today, I'm gonna to talk about this in a few minutes. Today, the University of Florida made big moves, but I actually wanna go out to California for a second. I want you to just think about all of these places. And again, to be clear, the theory here is that the major programs right now, the ones that you claim are choking the life out of the sport, they're not doing it just with homegrown talent. In fact a majority of the reason they're able to dominate is because no one's taken care of business and closed the gates on places like Southern California, Texas, and South Florida. Well, with USC right now, and UCLA for that matter, about to head to the Big Ten, that's big for recruiting. But independent of that, just Lincoln Riley coming into town is really big for recruiting and them indicating they're gonna be a big NIL player. That's big for recruiting. It doesn't mean... I know I said gate. It doesn't literally mean you're fencing off Southern California and no one will ever come and get a kid out of Calabasas anymore or Santa Monica anymore. What it means is it'll be harder. And if you really think about it, the difference sometimes in you winning a championship and you losing 38 to 27 could be one or two players. Maybe you lose them to injury or maybe you just never got them because you finished second. To USC under Lincoln Riley, whereas you would have beaten USC under Clay Helton for that same kid. So that's happening in Southern California. In Texas, it's the most glaring because in Texas you just watch Texas A&M bring home the top-rated class of all time. I don't have any doubts about what Texas A&M is going to be. There are some people mildly concerned about their start to this year's class. Bold prediction: I think they'll be okay in the end. Has anyone paid attention to what Sark and company are doing at Texas, though? They got Arch Manning a couple of weeks ago. That's good. Then they got uh, an entire tidal wave of commits after Arch Manning. And Texas is sitting there in the top three right now. They're ranked number three. It's not fool's gold. They're not going to fall off a whole lot. They still have guys that they're going to add, by the way. And so Texas is recruiting, not not at an unprecedented level. But I want to be clear. They are recruiting better than they have in the last several years. There's this lazy talking point out there that goes a little something like this. Texas always recruited well. What's the difference now? Well, the difference is the way they're recruiting. Uh, first off, this is a better class than the ones they've been recruiting, just higher ranked. But secondly, as I've said many times, I could sign 25 four and five star linebackers and have the number one class in the country. My team would suck because I did not evenly distribute the talent. It's all at one position. Texas went and got a lot of cotton candy. They got a lot of perimeter skill. They did good quarterback. They didn't recruit the line of scrimmage anywhere remotely close to the way they needed to. They're doing that now. And they're still getting those other horses too, but they're doing that now. And so the state of Texas doesn't become impossible to recruit over there if you're an outsider. It becomes all the more difficult. And then as we talk about what's happened in the Lone Star State, the most interesting place is to go to the state of Florida. We talked on Sunday night about how Mario Cristobal in Miami, after what some called a slow start to this cycle, had caught fire. And they're now, any given day, things are moving a lot. They're sitting there anywhere between 11th and 8th, 9th. Point is, they were ranked like 35th a couple of weeks ago, and that never mattered. And and this ranking doesn't matter in finality, but the difference is their final ranking will look a lot more like this than in the 30s. Second thing is they still got a lot of big fish out there. Thirdly, Mario Cristobal has been a big disruptor in this whole thing. He walked in the state of Florida. And I don't know why, but some people doubted he was going to do this, and he is doing every bit of what any reasonable person who's watched his career expected him to do, and then some. They're kind of just getting started there. Miami will be a total recruiting machine. If you answer them, that's fine. They are not going to be a variable. So Miami recruiting will be a constant down there. The big question, the million-dollar question in the state of Florida is, how are Mike Norvell and Billy Napier going to respond? Norvell and Florida State, they still have a lot of moves to make. July is going to be a big month for them. So they've they've still got names on the board. It's kind of an incomplete class right now. They're ranked 41st. They haven't made their move. It's not promised that they will make a big move. But if they are going to, that move is still a little bit in the future. Florida's starting to move a little bit, though. Just in the last 24 hours, just today, they picked up Marcus Stokes, who was a four-star quarterback who we met at Elite 11. He decommitted from Penn State. He commits to Billy Napier in Florida. Uh, they also got Trayon Webb, the four-star running back today. And that happened like within the span of an hour. Both kids are from Jacksonville, in-state products, big moves there. What did we say a couple of weeks ago? We said Florida, big question there was not Billy Napier. I almost have to do one of those what I didn't say and what I did say. What I didn't say was I doubt Billy Napier. I said the exact opposite. What I did say is he's got to be on equal footing with these other schools. He's got to be on equal footing. He's got to be given the resources. He's got to be given the latitude. I don't know that we've definitively learned that he has or hasn't. My point is, they're getting up to speed. I don't know they'll finish top 10 this cycle. In fact, I think it would be a mild surprise if they did. They're getting up to speed. Uh, Next cycle is the one where I'll fully judge Billy Napier. The 24 cycle, that's the one where I'll fully judge him. I don't think it's the wildest thing in the world to suggest that it takes a cycle, at least, for a newcomer, especially Billy Napier, who was not already a head coach at a Power Five school to get up to speed on the recruiting trail. That's not the wildest concept in the world. And you know what, if they can lock down a a 14th ranked class or a 16th ranked class in the process, good, because then you can make up for what you didn't land on the trail in the transfer portal to buy you time to do what you need to do in the 24 cycle. But if you think about every program I just mentioned, Southern Cal, Texas, A&M, even Florida State, Florida, Miami, who among them are not in better positions than they were three or four years ago. I think all of them have upgraded. And that's a really good sign if you're an Oklahoma State fan. It's a really good sign if you're a Michigan State fan or a Penn State fan or a West Virginia fan, because if you want that competitive balance, the biggest key is cutting off the the plentiful supply of talent from those areas to places like Columbus, Ohio, and places like Tuscaloosa, and places like Clemson. They're still going to be good. Bama's still going to be very good. Georgia, I don't mention them enough. Uh, they've been surviving and thriving, not surviving. I understand how deep the state of Georgia is, but they've been thriving not just on in-state talent. They're always gonna be good. You just wanna make it more difficult on them. That's all you can do. You're not gonna stop Bama, Georgia, Ohio State. How difficult can you make it for them to go out of their state and pluck talent? Because right now, it's not even hard. That hadn't been hard in a long time. So that's the key there, and that's changing. While everyone else is focused on realignment, obviously we are too, and then you're going to be focused on all these other things that you, in some cases, believe will inject parity. This is the key to real competitive balance, recruiting in Cali, Texas, and Florida. Let's get a question in here. I appreciate you guys, by the way, being tuned in live. Hey, like the video if you're watching right now, because we got like 2,000 people watching live and less than 400 likes. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Uh, The like button, the thumbs up button for those unfamiliar. Another paper pop. Let's move on. I had a question from Jojo, good friend of the show. Jojo said, do you think college football is finally going to get a commissioner now? I do. I really think this. Not tomorrow, but I really do think this. If you're professionalizing everything else about college football, why not that? The NFL's got a commissioner. Major League Baseball's got one. NBA's got one. Uh, It's the only thing, actually, that I haven't heard suggested lately. Everybody's talking about the professionalization of every other aspect of the sport. Are we going to get a commissioner? So um, the short answer is, it should be me. Let's just be real. But let's not name names. Let's just talk about the concept here. This is going to come. I think this is going to come. If you talk about the NFL, which for better or for worse, we're allegedly modeling the entire game after. Now you talk about the NFL. You got the AFC. You got the NFC. But if I were to ask you this question, who runs the NFL? You very quickly tell me. Well, you got Roger Goodell, who's the commissioner, and he answers to an executive committee, and that committee is made up of the 32 team owners. That's who Roger Goodell answers to. That's the power structure. If I were to ask you who runs college football, (laughs) I can't even get the sentence out. If I were to ask you who runs college football, what would you say? You You just yell at each other for an hour, and then we would leave no closer to an answer than when we first got here. No one knows who runs college football. Some people say Greg Sankey and the conference commissioners do. Some people say TV executives do. Some people say the college football playoff does. Some people say bowl executives do. No one knows. You're all right and you're all wrong. No one knows. There is not a face of leadership on this sport. Dare I suggest, that's the root of a lot of our issues. You know? Yeah, leadership, kind of an important thing. How will it be structured, though, if we were to get a commissioner in this sport? Forget about who it would be for a second. We can speculate on that all day. Man, that word's been used a lot tonight. I, I think the way it would be structured is you would have to figure out what your version in college football of your executive committee would be. So whereas in the NFL, it's the team owners, in college football, would it be your, your 10 um, conference commissioners? Would it be university presidents? Would it be a combination of the two? Because if you had a commissioner, they're going to answer to a board somehow, some way. So I think that would probably be the way it's structured, but then you get around to who it would be. And if it's not me, and to be clear, it should be, but if it wasn't me, I think the name could very much come out of left field. I think the popular choices are going to be like, of course, the current commissioners, you could get Greg Sankey from the SEC. You'll have a lot of names you know, but I also think there could be names that you've never heard of that don't really even need to be mentioned because they wouldn't mean anything to you. But they they need people or they need a person who can speak the language of NIL and just really the current language of the game. They need someone I think who is fluent in the world of media, not just media rights, but the mechanisms in the world of media now. They need to understand how things are different today than they were 10 years ago. They need to understand how valuable access to streaming is, but also maybe how that chokes off a little bit of the lifeblood of your conference. All of those things are very basic to people who speak that language, and it sounds like Portuguese to people who don't. You need someone who can delve into that. You need someone who is forward-thinking regarding player rights, because what is going to be in the very near future, especially when you sign these lucrative media deals, is probably some form of revenue sharing, I don't know exactly how that's structured. I don't know if you have collective bargaining. I don't know if you have the ability to unionize. I don't know if you're calling a player an employee. All that stuff has to be figured out. That is a commissioner's job, or at least part of it. So I think they need to be really, really well-versed in that field. They also though, on top of it all, hopefully, need to understand what the main thing is. And the main thing is you. You're the one, not players, not conference commissioners. You're the one that makes the product so valuable. We talk about this all the time here. You can have the most lucrative TV deal that you could ever want. You can have the biggest stadiums. You can have the shiniest helmets. You can have the best players. If the stands are empty, if the TV's not on, it doesn't matter. It's it's water polo. It it could exist, but it's not a revenue-generating sport. And so the one thing that's not being done nearly enough right now is people shutting their mouth and listening to what their audience says. One of the things that I pride myself on with this show is I constantly interact with you guys. Number one, it's because I'd much rather talk to you than management. But number two, I get that we're not here if you're not here. I understand that. Look at this studio. All this would be irrelevant if you didn't watch. Do people who run college football understand that about you? Some of them I would say yes. Far more I would say no. Or either they kind of would give you a they give you a talking point, focus group answer, but really behind closed doors they say they'll show up no matter what. They're not going to leave at this point. Maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. I hope at the very least someone understands the main thing. And then there's this other word that's dirty in nature Uh, politics do you understand how to keep politicians out of the game do you understand how to take care of your own business and keep your own house in order so that you don't have people with 14 different alternate agendas in washington looking down at you and saying we'll take that thank you please keep that away from here I know there's been swinging differences of opinion and philosophy out there about whether you need federal government intervention or not. We've gone back and forth on this show. Um, my, current, my current modus operandi is let's just hiss at that and let's, let's X our fingers in front of it. No. So get me a commissioner if you do that understands how to take care of business long before those folks ever have to get involved. I do think we're going to have a college football commissioner. I think it'll probably happen after this dust settles but I, I certainly think that enough people look at the current mess we have and understand it's due to a lack of leadership. Someone's got to shoulder the burden. It's going to be a heat position. You better find someone who doesn't care if they're liked or not, because uh, Roger Goodell, I don't even think he's a real human. I think he's more just a robot. You better find someone like that. Pay him a lot of money, and then it better be worth it to him, because they can't have feelings. They just have to be void of emotion. And if you find them, hire him. Thank you so much for watching. Make sure you are here Sunday night and make sure you are telling friends, family, and just mild acquaintances of yours. You got them a college football show to watch. And this is where it is. It's our channel, the Late Kick channel. You don't even have to search 24-7. To search Late Kick, here we are. For Director Colin, for Producer Jesse, I'm Josh Pate. Thanks so much for watching. Have yourselves a great rest of your evening and God bless.